We are in the middle of, uh, well, we're kind of beginning, a series, Ephesians, Made New to Live New. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians, Paul expresses throughout what God has done in Christ for us, making us new creatures, and then how that is fleshed out in our daily lives as we live as new creatures. And we are in the middle of a mini-series in that series uh, called um, uh, Get the Big Truth First. And that's because the very beginning of Ephesians, uh, verses 3 to 14, Paul kind of gives this big overarching story, this big truth um, into which all of our lives fit. Um, every little bit of life is, is kind of embedded or nestled in this big story, this big arcing story. And uh, so last week... Um, was chosen in the king. And so the big truth, if you want to get all three elements, it's the Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. And we say King uh, referring to Christ or Messiah, which you'll hear in this text quite a bit, which really in our language might, it might be easier to think of as King. So the Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. The Father has delivered us from bondage through Jesus the King. And the Father has secured us for the promised land by the Spirit of Jesus the King. Those are the three big elements to the big truth that we need to get first. Last week we talked about being chosen in Jesus the King. We, we, uh, we got into some deep, some deep waters talking about the Christian doctrines of election and predestination. Really um, kind of scary stuff. And over the course of the week, I had a number of comments from, from y'all who were here. Uh, questions, lingering concerns. Um, I, I, all, all I can say is if, if you want to know more, I, I'd love to speak with you about it. Um, but really, just the bottom line is, uh, yes, God chose us. That's true. And at this church, we also confess that, yes, we're free people. And we can freely respond to his grace. And, and that's a weird tension. It's hard to figure out how that, how that works together. Um, one thing I will uh, emphasize, reemphasize, is that uh, this church does not believe and has not believed that God chooses people for hell. Um, that's uh, something that is, I don't think, really uh, biblical uh, for the most part. There's a couple places where it might hit, but for, in general, um, there's just nothing there in the Bible, and so our church uh, has, has stayed away from that. But we do believe that God chooses. God um, chooses us and has plans for us, plans for our salvation. And yet at the same time, we also have free will, the ability to respond uh, to God's grace. So that was last week, that's chosen in Jesus the King. This week, this week, the Father has delivered us from bondage through Jesus the King. This week we talk not about being chosen, but how that chosenness is worked out in our deliverance. How Paul, in verses 3 to 14, is blessing God, this is a prayer, he's blessing God for his incredible salvation in our lives. And so this week we're going to stick tightly to the text and we're going to see what it is that Paul has to say to us about our deliverance. If you'd stand, uh, let's read the text. It'll be on the screens behind me. This is Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times 
he might gather together, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, in the heavenly kingdoms, and which are on earth in him. You may be seated. Last week I noted that this section in Ephesians has been called um, the most monstrous conglomeration of of a sentence in all of Greek literature because Paul just keeps layering phrase after phrase after phrase and we find that we get lost in it. It's hard to, to see our way through. Um, Paul's not using normal Greek here. He's, he's making a sentence that's insanely long and very difficult to work through, which is why we're having you know, three uh, different sermons on each of the elements. And so I, I, I think that it's helpful for us to get uh, from the King James to get something a smooth contemporary English translation. And I want to uh, work that out uh, work, work that out together. And so I'm going to show you piece by piece how we can develop a, a little bit of an easier to understand way of, of hearing this text. And so let's um, begin with, with verse 7, which says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Um, you'll notice on the screen I have ransom. I've replaced uh, redemption with ransom. And the reason for that is because when we hear the word redemption in English, uh, because of Christianity and Christian doctrine, we don't hear the word for what it actually means. When we hear redemption, we immediately, as Christians, tend to think about um, salvation or um, forgiveness, things like that. But that's really not what redemption is. Um, if you're at the carnival um, and you are, you've been using the ski ball, and then you get the tickets to come out and you tear off the tickets and you go to the prize booth and you redeem them. Right? You redeem them for a prize. Um, and uh, I've used the word ransom here. Um, the reason that redemption's weird is because it's a dead metaphor. We don't think about the carnival as much as we tend to think about uh, forgiveness. That's kind of like uh, the, the phrase falling in love. Um, if you've ever fallen in love and you've heard that phrase, you don't think about, well, really what it is. It's that feeling of falling when you first see her, the way that the light attaches to a girl, right? Uh, you see her and, and, and your heart drops a little bit and you're falling in love. We hear the words falling in love, we don't even think about that because it's a, it's a dead metaphor. It's been used so many times that it just means, oh, that means that's what it is when uh, two people start to get together. Redemption's the same way. And so I've uh, just replaced with the word ransom because ransom is not a word that we, when we hear ransom, we immediately think uh, about something different. We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Um, finishing out verse 7 and then into verse 8, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us, I've replaced with in keeping with the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Uh, and that's because the way that Paul thinks about God's grace is, um, well, when I was in college, uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go to my buddy Era's room. Aravind Dilipan uh, was, is a first-generation American, but his parents were from what used to be called Madras, is now called Chennai, India, southern part of India. Southern part of India is um, it's where they speak Tamil. Uh, his family spoke, spoke Tamil, and, and they're, they're, um, they don't uh, eat meat, right? And so if you're a vegetarian uh, and you don't eat meat, you've got to do something to really make food taste good. And so... <laughs> I'm sorry, if, if there are any vegetarians out here, I apologize. <laughs> That's just kind of where I'm coming from. But, but uh, 
but Era's mom was really good at this. And, uh, and she would just, she, rice and curry, and she, would, she was worried that Era might start eating meat at college because she knew that they served it there. She also didn't know that he'd converted to Christianity and had given up the food laws of, of, of Hinduism. But uh, that being the case, she, she would send him cartons and cartons and cartons of delicious southern Indian food. More than any one human being could eat, especially if, like Era, you weren't always eating your mom's food because you were going and eating uh, meat elsewhere. And so she actually, uh, they actually gave Era a refrigerator that um, he would he would stuff all of his food in, so that she would like send a monthly care package, and he would just load it up. And the thing about Era is that Era wanted to get everyone to experience his culture, and so he made it an open door policy. You could go in there, and he would just lavish, just dump delicious, spicy, hot Indian curry all over you. And this was, this was, uh, this was gospel to me. I, um, anything to just, you know, get the, the, the taste buds, uh, uh, numbed. Uh, he, and so I would go there all the time. It was like a weekly thing for me. Go over to Era, get some, uh, get some curry, like f- face on fire, most amazing thing in the world. And he would just, just dump it, just dump it out. He had treasure troves, treasure troves of curry that he would lavish on us. This is Paul's language for God's grace, right? God's got this storehouse of graciousness that he just dumps on the world. Anybody who comes, he opens up the refrigerator door and just dumps grace on you. And so it's in keeping, in keeping with this this treasure trove, the riches of of his uh, grace that he lavished on us. Moving on to finish verse 8 and into verse 9. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. I've changed to, with all wisdom and insight, God has revealed to us the mystery of his will because it brought him joy to do so. I've changed from prudence because we think of prudence, first off, it's a little bit an archaic word at this point. But second, when we think of someone who's prudent, we think of somebody who is able to make good choices given a lot of different alternatives. That's kind of what prudence is. So uh, someone who's prudent says, well, it could be this, it could be that. I think maybe it's best to go this way. That is not what God does. God always knows which way is the best. He's not having a difficult time um, searching out. Instead, what God has, and another meaning of this word that's behind it, is insight. And a person who has insight is able to look underneath and see the deep structure of the world and think about how things are connected and knows that and knows that and acts accordingly, which is much more what God does. And, and not only that, he's got this big, this big plan, which we'll talk about in a second, and that he, he's structured in a special way because he has such deep insight. And now, and now Paul says, God is revealing this to us or has revealed this to us, this mystery of his will, because it brought him joy to do so. The image that I think is probably most helpful here is if any of you are fans of David Blaine, the street musician, or I'm sorry, magician, the street magician, this guy, um, he had a shtick in the 90s that was really, really popular. He, he was just one of the people, you know. It's like, hey man, how's it going? He'd walk up to people on the street and then he would do these amazing tricks. What David Blaine was best at is, I mean, his thing was a lot of card tricks. And this one trick I love is where he, um, he gives a person a card and he gives them a pen. And he says, I want you to write your name on the card. So the person writes their name, Sally. And then he says, now I want you to rip it up into four pieces. And so she rips up the, the card. He said, give me the pieces back. 
and you get the pieces. And he, he, he kind of puts him in the middle of the deck, right? And then he's talking, da, 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 and, they, just, and then he's, draw the card. And you've seen the whole thing. She draws the card, and there it is. Her signature on the card, exactly as it was, totally whole. I mean. And everyone's like, oh, no way! There's this, it's great, it's great. David Blaine, you, you watch him, and, and he has a little smirk. He's like, oh, I nailed it. They didn't see that coming. There was no way. God, in Paul's mind, is a little bit like a magician who's pulled out all the stops. And, and one of the things that God loves is he loves to reveal it to his people. And then when we're blown away, as Paul is like, I can't believe we've seen the mystery of, uh, of your will, how you've planned out this incredible salvation. You, God, are wonderful. And God has that little smirk that says, ah, I love sharing this with you. Any teacher knows this when, when you're, you're explaining a difficult concept and then there's that student in the back who's always struggled a little bit. And then the light goes on. Aha! And that feeling you have like, it has been my joy to bring this to you. And it is your joy to receive it. With all wisdom and insight, God has revealed to us the mystery of his will because it brought him joy to do so. The end of verse 9 and end of verse 10, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times. I've translated to, he set forward in Christ. And this is a, this is a, a change to the New King James. The master plan that when the times were ripe. Um, the, uh, the translators of the New King James, uh, they, they were probably not aware that, um, that this word protithemi uh, can actually also mean to display publicly. They, they've translated purposed. It can actually mean um, to display publicly. And, and if we think about the kind of the flow of Paul's logic, it really makes sense. He's revealing the mystery of his will, right? And how does he do it? He publicly displays Christ. Christ himself is the mystery of his will. And so I, I, he set forward, he publicly displays in Christ. And what is he displaying? Everything, the master plan the dispensation of the fullness of times. Uh, dispensation in English, is, again, it's a strange word. We don't use it anymore. But really, uh, it, it talks about how God has set it up so that he does different things at different times. And um, our church confesses a very um, intricate explanation of the various ways that God works. One of the things that Paul's thinking about right now is he's thinking about God chose Israel, did amazing things in Israel. And now he's doing something brand new in Jesus Christ. And, and God put it all in front with Christ, this whole master plan of Israel and us, the church. And he just waited until the times were just right, the fullness of times, and the times were ripe, just idiom for idiom there. Um, in a way, in the old dispensation in Israel, God was doing his magic trick one way, and now in Christ he's doing it a new way. Finishing up verse 10. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. I've changed it to he might sum everything up in Christ, everything in heaven and on earth in him. Um, again, this is a uh, New King James. They, they probably didn't know what to do with this word because the word that I've translated, sum everything up, uh, really just means that. It's what uh, orators do when at the very end of their 
At the end of this sermon, if I'm doing a good job, I should kind of give you a summary of everything we've done. That's what this word means. It's a summing up. Um, and Paul uses this to talk about what Christ is, which is a very strange thing. And so the translators of the New King James were like, how is Jesus summing up like an orator everything that's in heaven and on earth? That's very strange. And so they, they kind of smoothed a little bit, gathered together, which still is weird, uh, but they thought maybe it was a little easier. How is Jesus the summation of the argument? And we're going to talk about that in a second. And so let's just pause. Let's hear this text again um, with some of these changes uh, just to get a smooth feel for Paul's, his language. Starting in verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have ransom. That is, forgiveness of sins through his blood in keeping with the treasure troves of his grace, which he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, God has revealed to us the mystery of will, the mystery of his will, because it brought him joy. He set forward in Christ the big plan, the master plan, that when the times were ripe, he might sum everything up in Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth in him. This is Paul's telling of the story of our deliverance, of our salvation. Let's see if we can draw out some of that theology for us today. In him we have ransom, that is, forgiveness of sins through his blood. Uh, Ransom, when we hear the word ransom, we immediately think, and this is not a bad thing to think, of um, when... uh, there's uh, the bank heist, and um, we, we call in the police, and the police have a guy named the hostage negotiator, um, typically played by Denzel. And Denzel, uh, Denzel, he's a fast-talking guy, and so he picks up the phone, and the, the, the terrorist or the, the bank holder-upper person says, I want this, this, and this. And Denzel says, I got a better deal for you. I'm going to give you me. But in return you got to let those hostages go. And the guy's thinking, he's like, well, okay, all right, fine. Hangs up the phone. Denzel puts on his, uh, his bulletproof vest, and he walks into the bank like this. He's got nothing on him. Maybe he brings a pizza because the people are hungry. And then uh, the bank hostage taker lets the people go. And Denzel has functioned as a ransom for life. Well, ransom is it's a storied word um, in the, the Old Testament. In fact, this is the first thing on your note sheet, the ransom redemption language of Ephesians 1.7 is drawn from the Old Testament's talk of Exodus. So the, lang- uh, the word that's being used there in Greek is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used very often for God's ransoming of Israel, right? So uh, ransom in the Old Testament, language of Exodus, God's ransoming of Israel, But this is a little bit weird, if we think about it. Because remember, if you remember the story, the story goes like this. Um, Moses says to the Pharaoh, let my people go. And the Pharaoh's like, no. And then so Moses says, all right, take me instead. You let them go, and I'll be your slave. No, that's not how it goes. Instead, instead, God smacks down Pharaoh with all kinds of terrible things. There's locusts and, and uh, water that's blood and, and, and there's dying cows and hail. And finally, and finally, there's the death of the firstborn child. 
But it doesn't ever seem like Israel is, or that God's giving something to get Israel out. It doesn't feel like a normal ransom, right? So at what cost is Israel ransomed? Is there anything that God does? Well, there is one victim in the ransoming of Israel from Pharaoh. And that victim is the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of Passover. God tells the Israelite people before his final plague, the plague that will take the lives of the firstborn children of Egypt, and says, if you don't want your child to be taken, then do this. Go and spend all that you have, because it's going to be very expensive if you don't already have one, to find a pure, unblemished, spotless lamb. And then cut that lamb open and drain out the blood and cook it and consume every part. And then if there are any remains, you burn them in the morning so that nothing is left. That lamb must be consumed entirely. This, of course, is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Israel. But it's the cost. You take the blood that you pour out and you put it on your doorposts. And when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will pass you over. And will not take your firstborn. Instead, it's going to take the firstborn of Egypt. And then, and then, Pharaoh is going to be broken. And he will let you go. This lamb is the cost of your release. Jesus' blood, Paul says, is like the Paschal Lamb. And it is the price of our release. But there's a difference. And this is the second thing on your note sheet. See, Jesus isn't taking us out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is ushering in a new spiritual exodus. The forgiveness of sins. Jesus ushers in a new spiritual exodus. The forgiveness of sins. No longer do we have a physical pharaoh. We have a spiritual pharaoh. Friends, a lot of times we think that uh, sin is just something between us and God, and there is an element in which sin is just between us and God. But the way that Paul talks about sin throughout his correspondence, his letters, is as if sin had a big capital S. It's as if sin has power. Paul says we're slaves to sin. You probably know this in your own life. Because there are things about yourself, if you're honest, that you just can't shake. There are things that run the show. Your need to be liked. Your need to be rich. Your need for this sex or that sex. There's a lot of things going on under the hood of your car. And sometimes it feels like those things run the show. And you feel like a slave. Paul gets that. But he says, once you've trusted Christ, that's no longer actually the case. You're deceiving yourself. You see, friends, the sin of the world, this big capital S, evil enemy sin, has done its worst to one person, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. It killed him dead. It killed him as dead as dead can be. 
And yet, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus came back, and he shattered that power that sin has over living things. Paul says this in Romans 6. You should check it out. It's very cool. The, the idea being that as long as we're alive, as long as we're alive, sin rules over us, and it reigns over us, and it has... But Jesus did that. He did that thing for us, where he was took on sin, all of it, on the cross, took all of it, present, past, and future, and he went down, and it drove him into the grave, because that's what sin does. The wages of sin, friends, are death. And it drove Jesus down to death. But Jesus came back. And when Jesus comes back, that sin is shattered. That power is done. It's over with. And as long as we're in him, through Christ, as long as we're in him, trusting in him, that, that, that chain, that power, it's broken for us too. We have forgiveness through his blood. The new Paschal Lamb. And so friends, you've got to ask yourself, are you free? Good news, you are if you've trusted Jesus, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But if you're not, I don't know, I don't know where you're at. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you have never trusted Jesus for freedom. Today's your day. This Paschal Lamb shatters the power of sin and death over your life. And if you have been set free, then begin living into your purchased deliverance. Because it was bought at a very high cost. Now, for Paul, this is all very strange. I mean, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's strange. That's the third thing on your, your note sheet. The Christ event is surprising, but it's in keeping with God's character. It's surprising, but it's in keeping with God's character. And so Paul says he set forward in, in Christ this master plan that when the times were ripe, he might sum everything up in Christ, everything in heaven and on earth in him. When you're, when you're in the middle of the trick, friends, and, and, and David Blaine, he's doing this and he's got that. When you're in the middle of the trick, you almost forget. You almost forget that moment when you signed the card and it got ripped up because you're in the middle of all a whole bunch of other stuff. He's, he's a showman. He's doing amazing things. And you, you, you've forgotten. And then when he reveals it, you're like, whoa, how did that happen? Paul's right in the middle of the trick, friends. He's a son or a child of Israel. And so he knows how God acted in Israel. And yet he's been, he's experienced, been shaken to the core of himself by the person of the risen Christ. And so he's right in the middle. He can see it both. And he says, this is shocking. It's wild. We're, we're sitting down with those dirty Gentiles and we're eating pork. This is bizarre. And yet, and yet, it's the same God. The God who set the people free from Egypt with his Paschal lamb is the same God who made Christ a Paschal lamb for the whole world. It's weird, but it's the same God. And yet, there's that weird thing in this text. Confuse the New King James translators. It's very strange. He set forward in Christ the master plan that when the times were ripe, he might sum everything up in Christ, everything in heaven and on earth in him. What does that mean? What does it mean to be summed up? How is Christ the summary statement of heaven and earth? I put on the screen the grain of the universe. Some of you um, have worked with wood before. I have not. 
but I've seen it happen. Uh, I live next door to uh, Scott, Glenn, and Jeff. Um, okay, and Kathy, but she wasn't doing a whole lot of the woodwork. Uh, and in the garage, you know, they would create things. I remember um, we, <laughs> it was the coolest thing. I think they still have it. I think Sam plays with it now. Uh, it's, this, uh, it's this medieval sword. It's gray and it's like weathered. Um, and uh, duct tape has been put around it because it was probably starting to rot. But I mean, this thing, it's like a hefty sword. And when you're a kid, you know, it's like a broadsword. You're like waving it around. I love that thing. You still have that? Yeah, you still got it, man. It stands the test of time. Wood, love it. Uh, so apparently, wood has um, a grain to it. It's like, if you, even if you look at a cross-section of wood, you can see like lines um, directing in, in a particular way. And if you're working with the wood, you're sanding it, you're cutting it, what you don't want to do is go against that grain. Instead, you want to stay with it. And when you do, when you do, you'll fit right in. Your cuts will be smooth. I want to suggest to you that Christ himself is the grain of the universe. He's the shape and the the trajectory, the direction of the universe. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then it might make a little more sense to talk about summing everything up. So if Christ is the summary of the universe, then we have to ask ourselves, what are the cosmos like? What are the cosmos like? What's the universe like? What's the universe like such that we could say it's shaped like this, it's structured like this, and and that is a picture of Christ. Christ is a picture of that. Well, we know. We know because um, the physicists have told us, right? Uh, You can turn on the Discovery Channel, or I don't know if there's still a Nova, or you can open up National Geographic or whatever, and the the physicists will tell you uh, the truth, which is that the universe is uh, totally random. It's just a a bunch of stuff colliding, randomly, with no sense to it. Um, it it's, uh, it's just... It's, basically, it's a big explosion. That's what they say. It's a, the universe is a big explosion. And we are like um, some of the smoke from the big explosion. That's, that's, that's the, the, the universe, according to our physicist friends. There's no reason, there's no principle behind it, there's no logic, there's no nothing. It's just... There's another story. This is actually, the the physicists are actually reacting against a story that was told um, in the uh, Enlightenment. And and the Enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson, for example, thought that the universe was like a perfectly ordered house. That it, it was like this perfect architectural structure, this edifice, that every single jot and tittle, uh, every T was crossed, every I dotted, and it was just perfect, beautiful. Um, that the, the laws and the ordering of the universe were steady and, and you could trust it and it, it's always the same everywhere you go. That's what the Enlightenment taught. The Bible teaches something different than both of those. Yeah. This is number four in your note sheet. The whole universe is structured according to the nature of a self-giving, crucified God. The whole universe is structured according to the nature of a self-giving, crucified God. Okay, that's weird. How can the universe be cross-shaped? Well, let me let me just let's just step back for a second. We're born again through Christ, right? Um, birth. What's birth like? Birth is. I mean, we've talked about this before. It's terrible. It's uh, one of the most horrible things uh, that's ever happened to anyone. 
something like 50% of the human beings on this earth will go through this terrible, terrible thing. Um, it, but what's so crazy about it is that you go through this terrible thing, a lot of pain, a lot of blood, gross things happen, and yet something beautiful pops out. That's how Alice, she just jumped right out, like, hey, here I am. I'm just kidding, that wasn't real. Uh, that's not what happened. Uh, but but you, see, you see that though, right? There, there's, there's this pain, there's this labor, and then something gorgeous, something new life pops out of it, right? Um, think about Christ as this paschal lamb, right? So you have this poor little lamb and you cut its neck open and you put the blood on the doorpost and you eat the darn thing and you burn up what's left. It's gone, it's been destroyed. And yet, and yet out of that lamb, there's freedom and liberation and hope. When I was in Japan, uh, I, I knew a guy who, um, he was a bonsai farmer. Uh, my parents, when they came to, to get me at the end of my time there, they got to meet him. Really cool, crusty dude. If you're, uh, if you're into bonsai, it, not only are you cutting up a small tree, it like shapes your entire vision of the universe. It's like spiritual. It's sort of like in Southern California surfers. You can never meet a surfer who doesn't have like the whole, like a philosophy of life built around catching waves. Uh, it's very similar. And for a bonsai, uh, you think about this thing. You have to cultivate it. You have to cut it back. You're always cutting it down, right? You're, in a way, you're, you're torturing it. You're, you're putting a little death, a little death into your bonsai tree. And out of that death, out of that death, something beautiful and cultivated is created. Apparently, uh, the way that forests work is that uh, a forest will get really overgrown and be, there'll be a big problem. It'll be dry and beat up and then lightning strikes and the forest burns down, most of it. And then after that burning, after that, that violence, that death, new life springs forth and the, and the forest becomes stronger and more lush than it ever was before. Fields, when they're cultivated to create uh, food, the, the, the soil becomes expanded uh, spent and, 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 and dried up. And so they used to let fields lie fallow. They would, t- they would stop growing so that the, 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 the field could, could regain its strength. And out of that, new life was born. Death into life. For any of you who've ever done any work, I'm sorry, it's no fun. Um, I, love, I love my job, but, you know, that's rare in the history of humanity. Work is tough. Right? And yet, and yet, if you have a project, something that you exert, you pour your life out into it, you give yourself to it, and then one day, you know, that piece of marble has become, was it the pieta? Or, um, you know, your, your ice block has become a beautiful sculpture, or, or your plans have become a beautiful building, that pouring out, that labor, produces beauty and life and freedom. For those of you who think that the Garden of Eden was a place with no pain and no work, I suggest that you listen to a couple of sermons that Neil and I did about two years ago, um, one on work and one on technology, both of which express the fact that it's interesting. Um, God says after the, the fall, Eve, your pain in childbirth will be greatly increased. Not brand new. Greatly increased. Adam, when you're working on the ground, it's going to be a lot harder and it's going to try and kill you. But it's still going to be work. That's built in to the structure of the universe. And in this way, Christ himself is a summing up 
of this pattern, this deep structure that the universe has in itself. That out of labor and death and self-giving comes new life, new hope, and freedom. And Paul blesses God because he sees it clear for the first time that the cross of Christ is the shape and pattern of all that is. Christ sums up the created order. That's earth. But this is cool. He also sums up the heavens, the heavenly order. Christ's cross sums up for us the Godhead, the Trinity itself, where the Father divests himself eternally into the Son, glorifying the Son. And yet, even though the Father and Son are differentiated, they are held as one, unified in the love of the Spirit. And then, and then Christ sends that glory back to the Father, this constant self-giving, self-divesting, and then receiving new over and over all throughout eternity. This is who God is in himself. And that is why our universe looks this way. And that is why it had to be summed up in only one way. And that is Christ on a cross, a crucified God. All of creation, heaven and earth, we see it in the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus. Friends, what this means for us, and this is number five on your note sheet, is that deliverance from bondage to sin and death comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone. Deliverance from bondage to sin and death comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone. What does the baby have to do with the mother's labor? A whole lot of nothing. She doesn't do a thing. What does the bonsai tree have to do with the master's cutting back? Nothing. It is a gift. Entirely, fully. The treasure troves of God's grace are poured out on us in Christ, and new life is received simply by faith and nothing else. This is the shape of the universe that Paul recognizes and proclaims as gospel to us that your salvation is by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, lest any one of you should boast. It is all God from beginning to end. The whole universe summed up in this beautiful image of a man crucified and life poured out to the world. Brothers and sisters, we have been delivered from bondage through Jesus, our King. Delivered from bondage, but to what? Brothers and sisters, we are delivered to the promised land. And that is what we will speak about in the next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the image of the cross that structures the universe. That all throughout the created order, throughout your own being in heaven, you image for us self-gifting that leads to life and liberty. God, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins, the shattering of the power of sin and death over our lives. We pray that we'll live into that. We pray that we'll trust Jesus for it. 
that will receive his deliverance through faith because of your grace. And that we will be people to whom the world looks and sees only freedom, only joy, only hope and security for the future promised land. In Jesus' name, by whom the whole world is structured, we pray. Amen.